Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. I have a lot to tell you about today, book lovers. The Melbourne Writers' Festival may be over, but a local celebration of writers and writing continues with the Yarra Plenty Regional Library's 11th Annual Book Lovers' Festival. It started last Friday and finishes up on the 21st of September, and in total 50 events will be hosted across nine libraries, totally epic. Joining me later in the hour to talk about the event is the library's executive manager of public participation, Lisa Dempster, who may be familiar as the former director of the Writers' Festival, but soon. I was won over many years ago by her tiny, tightly wound fiction, small stories containing vast universes of meaning. Since then, Australian author Josephine Rowe has shown us she can master the longer form with a novel and now a beautiful collection of short stories, Here Until August. All still densely packed with detail and imagery, masterworks of prose. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. You're listening to Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg, and the show is Backstory. Now, she's the master of small, tightly wound prose, the kind that makes you slow down, absorb the lines, meaning unpacked with every word. Short, absorbing stories ranging in perspective and place and character, each as captivating as the last. Josephine Rowe mastered the microfiction form and her longer form writing still contains universes of meaning in every single line, reveling in minutiae. Her latest book, Here Until August, a collection of short stories, has reached an assured mastery and Josephine Rowe joins me now to talk about her book, Craft, and where this collection takes us. Josephine, welcome to Backstory. Thank you, Melissa. Thanks for having me. It's really genuinely such a pleasure. I was saying to you uh, before off air that, you know, as you well know, I'm a, a huge fan of your writing, but this book particularly sort of made me really take a, you know, slow down and pause over every single word because I can sort of really feel the craft in, in this book, but not in a way that's intrusive. I'm really interested in how you write, especially these longer short stories, I guess. Are you still really kind of writing long and then pairing back? How do you do it? Uh, Well, thank you, firstly. Um, A lot of the stories in here took several years, which I know sounds maybe um, a little bit overwhelming, but I, I, I realized I kind of like working that way over longer forms when I can get away with it. Uh, so there are st- probably seven years overall, and I did write the novel somewhere in, in there, in sort of in the middle of that. Uh, but the older stories in this book, I started writing before I left Australia for Montreal in 2013, and then, you know, they've changed shape several times so I think a lot of them still have these sort of shadow selves underneath or parallel to them Uh, and I think my approach is still very similar to those very short works which I again would probably be 
uh, maddening for somebody who's kind of thinking about time. It's sort yeah. of interesting because I think, you know, this is something I also discussed with the writer Favelle Parrott mm. um, about how she writes, which is that exactly what you've described, that sense of a, of a ghost of what's not on the page uh, and you know I, I don't want to get too supernatural about mm-hmm. it but there must be those legacy words that are left or these this imagery that is uh, has echoes of something bigger in it do you think that that does require that sort of real like you know carving down of something from a big unhewn stone to this really you know compact like I guess sort of statue that you've sort of chipped away at right. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess there's all kinds of sort of uh, visual, practical arts metaphors we could apply to it because sometimes it's more like a sort of slow collage or a layering and sometimes, as you say, it's sort of pulling something out of uh, a solid uh, material or element. Um, yeah, it's it's kind of it depends on the story, I suppose. But I definitely when I read them now in book form, I'm sometimes surprised to see that something is actually missing because in my head it's sort of holding everything at once and I can only hope that some of those um some of those shadows or the sense of what's not actually there on the page does sort of echo a little bit for a reader. It absolutely does. And I think, look, one of the elements that really captivates uh, readers when, you know, when going through your prose is this real focus on minutia. Like you really do, you know, make people observe the world through the eyes of the protagonist. And I think that is your particular talent is that you've kind of, you revel in the language of it, but that makes you really consider the, the object or the atmosphere of a place. What brought you to that kind of writing? Oh, goodness. Um what I mean, I do have a background as a as a poet, but when when I'm asked the "Where did you start as a writer?" question, I it's a long reach. You know, I've been writing since I was small. I guess I started publishing things when I was 19 and taking myself seriously as a writer, and also writing or any form of art as an actual living, a livelihood, a vocation. Uh, that doesn't. It's sort of seems like a graspable idea of a way to live when you're six or seven and then there's a long period when you're kind of told that that's not a realistic thing to be um and then you sort of grapple your way back to it anyway um but how did I I I think I I think I do inherently have a dislike of waste there's that so uh if I can do as much with uh do as much as possible and as little as possible that's that's great and I mean these stories are quite long um but I do hope they're sort of uh feel like there's a little bit um you know they they do spill out over their 7,000 words or whatever they absolutely do and I think you know there's a, a great sense of place in these in these stories, they range across uh, different countries and, and different perspectives and times and viewpoints. But each of them really does have that, you know, that sensibility of, you know, of the place or of the thought that's going on, you know, by virtue of the language that you use. You don't explain things, uh, you know, or explain what the meaning of, of words are. You just use them in, in a context that then allows the reader to sort of enjoy the flavour of a word that maybe is unfamiliar um, and then kind of absorb 
the place that you find yourself in. Mm-hmm. It's a really extraordinary experience. How did you kind of do, I mean, I have a real sense while reading this that this is a kind of mechanism of an author kind of really considering a place that they have been um, and then putting it through that kind of wonderful, you know, like context of a brain and, and coming out with something else. How did you write these kind of stories in this sense of place well what you say about the language that might be specific to a particular dialect or to a place um i i like using colloquialisms that are true to an area and you know maybe these are contradictory over the course of a book but i think readers are smart and they like encountering unfamiliar language i think especially anybody who's reading my stories probably is there for the language Um, And probably they're reading because it's a willful act of discovery and they're as excited about these things as I am. So, I mean, if I can get away with not italicizing something to sort of flag that it's like a foreign word, I I just don't think it's necessary a lot of the time. And it has a bit of an othering effect when what I want it to do is to have, as, as you suggested, a kind of more immersive effect of whatever place I'm writing about. Um, editing this collection in stereo between the US and Australia was interesting because I sort of had to kind of fight my case for why this story needed to have, you know, um, I don't know, what would I say? A pavement instead of a footpath or, or whatever is a good example. Or um, uh, what's another one, Melissa? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to be I honest know, with like... you, I, well, there's there's many um, mentions of, of regionalisms. Even mm. um, it's not even simply the language mm. of the place. It's like uh, suddenly, you know, uh, you know, uncontextualized city is mentioned, but in mm. a way that makes you feel like you should be familiar with right. it, which is delightful because I think you know, especially when you're writing in the close first person or in a you know, a sort of, you know, warm second person or in a, a third person, which again is obviously quite close in this kind of writing, you do immediately feel like, you know, you're experiencing this. And I think that that is what you've done with this language use is that I do find it almost impossible to then kind of pinpoint the regionalisms because they don't stick out. They really do feel like uh, they're part of the idiom of the character. And it's quite incredibly masterful. If you've just uh, tuned in and you're wondering what I am talking about, you're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg and I'm talking to author Josephine Rowe about her really quite beautiful collection of short stories here until August. A real masterwork in tightly spun short fiction. Josephine, you know, again, I really, I kind of feel as though the best way to get across, uh, you know, the texture of your writing is to give people a taste of it. So I'd really love if you are happy to, for you to read uh, one of the the stories and perhaps sort of set it up for readers so that they know what they're about to hear. Absolutely. Um, So, I mean, we were talking about place and and a lot of the stories in this collection are about characters who were sort of caught between two different places and generally those are geographical and, um, and quite contradictory. So uh, this is this is the smallest or the shortest story in the collection, and if there's time, I might just read the whole of it. It's only a few pages, um, and it's a a couple coming across something, a uh, kind of natural phenomena that they're not familiar with. 
It's called What Passes for Fun. Somewhere close to the end of things, we drive past a pond and see that it's that only its frozen surface remains, two inches thick and half an acre across, just levitating there. How is this possible, we ask ourselves, and we stop the car to look. The pond's surface has been frozen around a stand of cattails, and that's what is propping it up now, all those thin, hollow stalks, as though it were the canopy of some modest structure, something we might assemble on a beach or in some other treeless place to keep the sun off the babies. Everything beneath the ice has drained away, everything that was not solid. Where the cattails stop, so does that unlikely architecture. Here is the edge of the frozen sheet, clean and deliberate as a cross-section, the fogged blue of sea sea glass. We can see where the cattails pass through the ice, spearing it, reaching on up into the January sky and holding the pond surface up there triumphantly, three feet above the ground. Beyond the cattails, the surface lies in hard white pieces of the empty bed, shattered like an opaque mirror. The babies want to crawl in under there and play, but we don't let them. A few broken stalks and the ice ceiling might collapse and crush them. But we understand the impulse. They have only recently learnt to walk, to fling themselves clumsily between what they have and what they want. You and I have been upright for decades, not having gained much grace for all that, and still we'd like to walk out onto it, onto the lofted ice to see if this implausibility can hold our weight. But we are superstitious. Because even though we can envisage the chain of events that might cause such a thing to happen, a blocked drain, a snap freeze, an unblocked drain, the surprising but not impossible strength of cattails, it is still magic. It is magic in the sense that there is no metaphor you can build out of it that will not undermine its magic. We stand at the roadside looking out at it for 10 or 15 minutes, holding tight to our daughters who flap belligerently at the ends of our fingers like poorly trained kestrels. Then we get back into the car and drive to your sister's house, where the salmon is overdone and nothing extraordinary happens, where we try with our rickety metaphors and cannot even get them to judder across the table. We watch them fall over between the salt shaker and the cruet stand. Your sister grows tired of humouring us and begins clearing the dinner plates with the neat little piles of translucent bones. What passes for fun with you two? she says, Christ Almighty. While your sister is in the kitchen, I swipe through the photographs and find every one of them wanting, paling in comparison to the remembered pond. I hold the phone up for you to look. This isn't quite it, is it? No, you say, leaning across the table. That just looks like an ordinary frozen pond. Several hours and many miles before the uplifted pond, I had prayed in a vague and wordless sort of way to whatever nameless thing we entreat when we do not believe in God. It's hypocritical, you've told me this, to still want signs, to scratch for evidence of predestination, something bigger than ourselves with its chin above our heads, its paws upon our shoulders, something to tell us, yes, go on, this is the way to go. But at your sister's table... We are still working with what we have. 
What we have is whatever hasn't drained away. I say this aloud. I am that dumb. I wind it up and I let it go. Watch it teeter, then topple over. Salt shaker, cruet stand, before it gets to you. Still sitting right there across from me. Still hopeful. Still waiting for something you can trust your weight on. Thank you so much. That was really beautiful. Uh, and if you uh, just tuned in during that reading, that was Josephine Rowe reading one of her stories, uh, the last in the collection from here until August, uh, which is out now. I do want to just make this wonderful observation um, about your writing. Um, it really is, you know, even though you have this sense of real, I guess, you know, contemplation, lyricism even it's not without a you know it like it definitely never kind of devolves into passive tense at any point it's not overwritten uh, and I think part of that is how you use language and I've spent a lot of time kind of going over what you're doing because it's extraordinary and I think one of the things that I really love about your writing is how you'll turn a noun into a, a verb um, you know of your own invention at times and I think that that is that seems to be kind of a consistent feature of a lot of the writing uh you'll also use a lot of compound words you do a lot of little tricks like this to kind of keep it an active sort of sense to the writing keep a narrative drive going even though you are very much in this sort of you know within the mind I guess of your protagonist is this something that you have kind of evolved over time a sense of how to kind of really drive a narrative forward while at the same time getting that sense of contemplation or is this just natural to you as uh, as how you kind of observe things because it feels very very tightly crafted thank you I mean I think a lot of it is really by instinct and and I probably don't even think about what category of sentence something is and there's probably things that you can see more clearly that you would have to point out to me that I that I do because they're just sort of fused I'll just give with, you my highlight <laughs> thank you I mean I would learn How something about myself that? absolutely I think there are things that you don't necessarily see as a writer or as an artist that other people have to point out to you and sometimes they're incredibly obvious like are you aware that all of your stories are about a kind of homesickness <laughs> right okay yes and that's that would definitely be the the connective thread through all of these and I think uh going back to your question about place I think that's why um well I hope the the a lot of the places are vivid because they are all places I have had like quite quite a deep connection to, whether that is having lived in them and it being a kind of formative part of my life in the last few years, um, or, or kind of through somebody else whose home it is uh, who I care about. And so um, I think that brings its own charge to a place and and also makes it a little bit haunting in a good way. It yeah. definitely feels that way. I had the sense that each of these stories were really written in absentia, that mm. there was a, an inbuilt sense of nostalgia or loss or longing in each of them. But having said that, each of the characters are, are very different characters. They have their own perspectives on the world, they're of different genders, they're of different viewpoints, uh, but there is a sense that all of them are at the cusp of some great, you know, perhaps even dramatic change, mm -hmm. uh, all done within the kind of quiet of this, you know, of this moment that has 
a sense of, you know, of something big about to happen. I think that that's really one of the things about this collection that I really felt like many of these stories were so tightly coiled uh, because it felt like they were about to leap off into these very dramatic next episodes. Great. I'm so glad that carried. That's exactly what I was hoping for. Um, The collection actually had a a different title uh, when I was working on it, and that was Horse Latitudes. Do you know what that no, mean. no. So it's a it's a shipping term for uh, the kind of thirty to thirty five latitudes, both southern and northern hemisphere, and this is where the trade winds die down, and ships would become you know just, yes for for long stretches of time, or nobody could they just had to wait for the trade winds to pick up again, and so the phrase comes from. Um, apparently from when they used to push the horses overboard to conserve water but but that kind of spoke but that as a as a phrase I think spoke to a lot of where these characters were at in their lives they had you know they'd lived a certain way and now they were in some kind of uh kind of enforced pause waiting for the next thing and so I'm I'm glad that worked for you and it did hold a sense of um momentum in it as well it absolutely did and I and I feel like it's a really apt place to leave this conversation although I would love to talk to you much more uh, Josephine about your incredible writing uh, because it really is something that I want people to kind of experience for themselves as readers truly there is as many things to get out of this as there are readers to read it Um, so thank you so much for joining me today Josephine Rowe oh thank you it's good to see you again You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. You're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg. Now, book lovers, worry not. The Melbourne Writers' Festival may be over, but you still have much to celebrate with a dedicated festival happening until Saturday the 21st of September. The Yarra Plenty Regional Library's 11th Annual Book Lovers' Festival has 50 events across nine libraries around the place. And the event includes author talks, uh, an aspiring writer open mic improv night, which I'm really curious about, a bilingual Macedonian reading and performance, and a chocolate tasting a match to recommended reads to name but a few. And joining me now to discuss this uh, incredible sounding festival is Yarra Plenty Regional Library's Lisa Dempster, who will be familiar to many of you in her former role as the Melbourne Writers Festival director. Lisa, welcome to Backstory. Thanks for having me. Uh, Love festivals, as you can tell. (laughs) You absolutely do. And this one really does sound like it's it's quite a book lover's feast. I want to start with something that I haven't mentioned in the introduction and I hopped on the the library website and there's a bunch of books that are listed uh, as potential reads for the festival and I was going through them going oh I've read that one I've read that one I haven't read I can't believe I haven't read that one they're all by Australian authors and they're all kind of smashing reads what was the thinking behind that because it's a wonderful sort of book clubby feel 
Yeah, well, obviously the library loves books and we have a great community of readers and writers around us. Um, One of the points of Book Lovers Festival is to really try and connect people with different kinds of books. So some they might be familiar with already from their favourite authors. Others might be something that comes through a recommendation. And one of the things I really love about the book list we've put together for this year's festival is that we actually asked a lot of our festival authors what their favourite books are. And so you can actually pop along and say, oh, what does Claire Wright read or what does Claire Coleman read and have a look and find some new books that way as well. It's a really really great uh, sort of opportunity to go through and find out you know more broadly what's what's on offer um around your libraries as well I sort of I'm a little bit in love with libraries at the moment I've kind of I'm lucky enough I guess that I I get a lot of books sent to me I get an opportunity to read new books but one of the things I'm really increasingly enjoying about going to libraries even picking up things like old journals or just being in that kind of atmosphere you know, even wandering around and looking at the serendipity of just picking up something from a shelf. But libraries now are kind of so much more than that. You really do have opportunities for people to have access to technology that they might not normally have. It's really just a wonderful place for the community. Absolutely. And uh, for your listeners who might not have been to a library recently, they are very different to what they were like even sort of 10, 20 years ago. Certainly uh, when I was growing up as a bookworm and a lifelong book reader, I spent a lot of time in libraries and they were really dedicated to the book uh, and to having quiet spaces within the libraries for people to read and research. And they're they're now absolutely buzzing. Um, A lot of libraries are very driven by programming. So it's about how different people are using the space, connecting in the space. Um, Yes, we have study spaces and still have a passionate community of readers, but there's so much else going on. So, you know, at the start, you mentioned our event matching chocolates to books and that's actually driven by one of the book clubs that meet at the library so it's kind of a hub that is sparking a lot of sort of community connections and a lot of creativity in the people who live around them uh, in ways that you know to be honest I didn't necessarily know until I started working in the library sector as well. Um, I'm really interested in talking a little bit more about the festival itself because there's some really gorgeous events that are happening. Tell me about this uh, chocolate tasting I mean (laughs) seriously was that one of those ones that came up came up in a meeting and people went, yes, yes, we must have this chocolate tasting match to books. And also, how do you match a chocolate tasting to books? Because I can think of some ways, but I want to hear what's actually happening. That is a very good question. And we've actually got two tasting events this year. So one of them is matching tea to books, because obviously what better connection? And one is matching chocolates to books. And they were really driven by uh, the community interest. So driven by local traders in the area, a chocolate shop and, you know, a tea shop, thinking about ways that they could connect with the community at the library um, and the book clubs who are based in those libraries, obviously embraced the idea and said yeah we would love a bit of a chocolate matching to the book to be honest I don't know the logistics of how it's coming together I have my own ideas about what books I would match to what chocolates but I think um yeah we'll just have to see how it flows on the day absolutely well I can think of a few recommendations for you. <laughs> Look, just dark and bitter that's all I'm saying that's that's what I like with my reading there's also something that I think is kind of quite close to my heart a silent reading party is going to happen for the Australian reading hour and 
I know it sounds kind of silly to to get together with people to sit silently, but it's actually one of my favourite things to do is to read in comfortable silence with someone. Can you talk a little bit about this event? Absolutely. So the Australian National Reading Hour is, you know, an annual national event that really encourages anyone who's interested in reading or who maybe hasn't read a book for a while just to sit down for an hour and read, you know, kind of reminder of the role the books play in our lives. And so for Book Lovers Festival, one of the things the library wanted to do was take that a step further and say, well, why not come into the library to read? It's quite an obvious connection. Um, But some people as well, like you, they like to read alone, but together with other people, other people might be too shy to come along to an event. Um, And silent reading parties are kind of a bit of a a hip thing that's happening around town at the moment. Uh, So we thought we'd put a few on at the library and we actually have one happening in the garden at Diamond Valley. So you can come along. Hopefully it's going to be a day like today, a beautiful spring day. Just bring a rug and lie in the garden and hang out and spend an hour reading. I think this idea as well of carving out space in your life to read, which, you know, for many people is a luxury because, you know, you have your work, you might have family, you might have other responsibilities to kind of have that legitimacy, I guess, for an activity that feels otherwise a little indulgent, but is totally necessary, um, is a wonderful thing. Absolutely. And reading can feel luxurious. You know, for me at the moment, I do a lot of commuting. And so I'm listening to a lot of audiobooks in the car. And while I love reading that way it's not quite the same as saying yeah I'm just gonna lie on a couch for an hour and have a read or you know lie outside in the sun for an hour and have a read and I think um yeah connecting to literature in that way is just a really fantastic way to I mean it sounds a bit cheesy but fill the soul in a lot of ways if you've just joined us, you're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm talking to Lisa Dempster about the Book Lovers Festival, which is happening now through the Yarra Libraries uh, Regional. Um, oh, I'm, sh- I'm sure I'm getting that wrong. The Yarra Plenty Regional Libraries uh, Annual Book Lovers Festival. Uh, it's on until the 21st of September. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg and I'm talking to Yarra Plenty Regional Library's Lisa Dempster, who is talking about the 11th Annual Book Lovers Festival, which is happening across nine libraries with a full 50 plus events happening um, of all sorts, uh, not just uh, author talks, but there's all sorts of interesting other events, uh, including memorably a chocolate matching session with your favourite book and a tea matching session because who doesn't like a cup of tea and a book? But Lisa, I do want to talk a little bit about some of the uh, the authors that will be featured at this festival. Who will people be able to see or who will they be able to hear from? We've got a lot of exciting authors coming. Um, our closing night event is Sarah Bailey, who's a fantastic local thriller writer. Um, she wrote a wonderful book called The Dark Lake, um, which was her first novel, which kind of captured the imagination of thriller readers in Australia. So she's coming along to talk about the writing process, which we're very excited about. Um, one event I'm really looking forward to is the Clares. So we have Claire Reich, obviously a fantastic, um, you know, historical writer, and Claire Coleman, who writes um, sci-fi. So they're coming from very different writing perspectives, um, but they're meeting each other in a stream called Fact Versus Fiction. Uh, so really, we've got different kinds of writers coming together to talk about, I guess, the truth that lies in the heart of a story. Yes, you might be writing 
history, you might be writing sci-fi, who knows where the truth actually lies somewhere between those things. Um, So I've got a lot of really great conversations like that coming up. One of the things I was thinking about when I was looking through this event was that so many people, well, for so many people, particularly those who have other things going on in their lives and maybe literature has dropped off the list, book clubs have become a really important uh, thing for them. So not just to kind of get them back into reading or make them feel like they're doing something outside of their norm, but also really important social connections. People can feel quite isolated in their day-to-day lives, even if they have a family and they have a job. Um, Don't often maybe take time for that sort of more humanist approach to life. And I think book clubs are a particularly important element. This event does seem to really embrace that that idea <laughs> yeah. of the book club. Is we love fact- the book club. Obviously, um, we think book clubs are really important for the reasons that you've just mentioned. Um, it is that opportunity, as we've been talking about a little bit, to carve that time out and say, well, that's the one time a month I am going to uh, go and you know indulge in my passion for reading. Um, it gets a lot of people out of their comfort zones. I think one of the things that I'm always curious about with book clubs is the rules of the book club. So how do you choose the books? And is it a democracy? and you know all that kind of stuff and I think um, it is quite interesting to see how books clubs uh, book clubs evolve within themselves um, but yeah that sort of commitment to reading a book a month or a book every two months and going along and talking about it is really important um, and that as sort of sense of discoverability as well because um, if you're at a book club through a library often the books will be coming through the collection so you can see what uh, other people are reading and enjoying and really get inspired to read outside your comfort zone in that way. Uh, I think people who love books, you and me, Mel, just find a comfort in being around other people who get it. I really love this idea, <laughs> though, of having the rules of the book club laid out because I can just imagine, look, this is a really important thing to consider, anyone who's listening out there. Absolutely. You do want to select your book club quite carefully because you want to be on the same page, and I'm not being punny, uh, about <laughs> how you're conducting the book club. And I feel like festivals like this can be a really good opportunity to meet those kind of like-minded book nerds that uh, that really want you to actually read the book. That's right. And what I love about book clubs is some book clubs are at the looser, sort of more wine-based end of the book club and others are at the sort of the more we're bringing talking points and we're discussing the questions end of the spectrum. Uh, and there's no right or wrong way, obviously, to do a book club, but it's about finding that community that you feel that you click with and that you can have those robust or loose discussions as it may roll out. And you may even find, uh, you know, I teach writing and actually one of my students, I think, found their way uh, into writing through book clubs through kind of really reacquainting themselves with this love of literature that they hadn't sort of expressed since childhood. Mm, That's lovely. I think, I mean, for a lot of the writers that we have in Book Lovers Festival, their advice that they're running a blog sort of with writer's advice and and Brand Presser in particular spoke about the importance of writers um, to read and how sort of that understanding of literature and that love of reading is what really drives someone's ability to be able to tell a story and to write Um, and that connection between the reading and your own creative output I think is a really important one um, that we are exploring at the festival I think not everyone wants to be a published author but a lot of us have a story in us that is expressed in some way either in the stories that we tell our families or through our social media um, in a lot of different kinds of ways and uh, one of the things we're trying to do at Book Lovers is create those opportunities for people to get in touch with that more creative side of themselves as well. So very important question. How do people turn up to events, get involved, buy tickets? Because I believe a lot of these events, if not all, are free. Uh, So 
I would love to know more about how people can do that. Well, it's all free. Uh, you could just head to the Aeroplenty website, which is yprl.vic.gov.au, uh, see what's on and show up to your local library. It's really wonderful. Lisa Dempster, thank you so much uh, for joining us once again to talk about your wonderful connection with books and writing. Thank you. That was Lisa Dempster talking about the Book Lovers uh, Festival, which is happening now around something like nine different libraries with 50-plus events. It's the Yarra Plenty Regional Libraries 11th Annual Book Lovers Festival. If you are going to be Googling that, I'm sure you're going to find everything that you need to know. Uh, And, you know, it's really one of those wonderful things about living in a city of literature like Melbourne which is that there is always something to do that is connected to the love of books, writing and ideas around those. So really enjoy it. Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website, Facebook, Instagram or Twitter.